And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to the Sustainability Story. I'm Matt Orsog with CFA Institute. Uh, today, we have a kind of a special guest. Uh, the, the name of the podcast is The Sustainability Story because I love stories and I consider myself a storyteller. And when I think about companies and sustainability and ESG and all those things, I see the story in things. I'm, not, I'm a CFA, so I know how the spreadsheets work, but I'm, I'm a story guy at heart. And I ran into this old friend of mine a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and I thought, you know, the conversation we had that morning, he left, I thought this would make a great podcast. I'll give you a little history from my point of view. Terrence Berry and I met about 14, 15 years ago. The woman who was unfortunately dating me at the time, who's now my wife, uh, said, you need to meet a friend of mine, this Terrence. I think you'll like him. And so we met at a cafe in Manhattan, the three of us. And I remember about three hours later, Hannah was looking at us like, you guys are terrible. <laughs> because we talked... For about three three hours about our love of stories, whether it was the comic books we read as a kid, the books we love that shape our lives, the movies we loved, we're both story people at heart. And so, we uh, Terrence lives in he's, you'll you'll hear from his voice he's an Irish guy lives in the Netherlands with his family now. He came over to the states for some business and we reconnected. And the morning he left, we had about a half hour conversation about some of the issues we're going to talk about today. And I said, oh, this would make a great podcast. So without further ado, I introduce to you Terrence Berry. Terrence, Terrence, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got here and what you're doing now. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for inviting me on. Brother from another mother, I think, is, <laughs> is the phrase that pe people throw around. And I think Hannah, when she uh, introduced us, I think quite quickly regretted bringing <laughs> us together. I, I think her, her instincts were right, that they, we were similar creatures. Right. So yeah, both storytellers at heart. How did I get here? I suppose my, my story is um, a story of three acts, and uh, I'm now in my third act. The first act was a, probably a similar one for a lot of your listeners, a traditional corporate career. I was 15 years in the automotive business, 10 years with BMW Group in Europe, and then five years with Bentley in, in North America, living in Manhattan, which is where, where we met. So it was a 15-year sort of first act of, of my sort of professional career, but I sort of got up in Manhattan one morning and realized that my life was helping incredibly rich people buy incredibly expensive cars. And I thought there was maybe something a little bit more meaningful to do. Not that that's a bad career, but I could see 40 on the horizon and wanted to do something different. Yeah. And I increasingly realized, a little bit like yourself, that actually storytelling is the heart of everything. And I realized that selling, especially something like a Bentley, it's about the narrative. It's the story you tell and the world tells about that product. So I realized actually I knew quite a lot about storytelling, but not as much as I needed to or wanted to. So I set off on a, on a so seven-year journey, which went through Hollywood and writing festivals all over the world, 
trying to understand narrative at a deeper level. How, how does a story actually work? What's the mechanics under the surface? So I spent seven years doing that. I was in sort of TV and film, dabbling in that world. I was in the advertising commercialist business, dabbling in that world, in the pure sort of commercial writing space, never looking to build a career in any of them, but really trying to learn how does a story work in all these different worlds? And is there a common denominator across all of these worlds? How do people persuade other people through narrative? Uh, And then in 2013, I decided to start the third act. Uh, And that's really where I took these two previous strands of my life, a professional corporate career, and then this story journey or story exploration, and I sort of fused them together. So what I've been doing since 2013 is working exclusively in the commercial uh, industrial space, working with companies, usually at board level, to help them build better stories, to motivate their employees, to sell their product more effectively, to win customers, to reassure shareholders, whatever it might be. So that's what I basically do. My, my story is a three-act story that's got me to this place. And what I do now is I basically tell stories for a living. Well, tell you know, tell us the name of your company and, and what you what you do, and then we'll get into the meat of what we're going to talk about. Sure. So the company's called Brand and Story, brand-and-story.com. We're based in Amsterdam. We're a very small operation on purpose. We used to be a, a little bit bigger And pre-COVID, we made the decision to scale back a little bit and shrink down because we were making commercials, we were making film, we were making animation, we were running events based around narrative. I was sort of, uh, I'm I'm not a young spring chicken anymore, so I basically saw a burnout on the horizon and I thought, okay, let's get back to the thing I absolutely really love doing. And if I look at the world around us today, I think we've got an awful lot of challenges, more than, than they, we did or more than I was aware of when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, you're talking about one of the major ones, the whole sustainable challenge. And I sort of realized that two or three years ago, pre-COVID, I think governments have a really difficult time to get us out of the hole we've got ourselves into. I think governments, by their nature, have got to be elected. They've got to stay in power. There, there's a different narrative playing there. And I look at businesses and I say, you know, businesses have got the, the willpower, they have the, the momentum, they have the money, they have the relationships, they have the bandwidth. If we're going to get ourselves out of this trouble, it's going to be corporations that are going to lead the way. They're not going to get there on their own. They won't lead us out on their own. It's going to take everyone to pull together. But businesses can lead the way. So what I've been trying to do for the last two and a half, three years is trying to find those businesses that I think genuinely will be one of the leaders of the new world, whatever that world is we're going to build, and trying to help those leaders be more compelling, help them to get their employees to buy into the mission, to convince their customers to maybe pay a little bit more because it's the right thing to do. So that's the sort of last two and a half, three years, really concentrating on those kinds of people as customers. All right. Now let's back up a little bit and talk about, you said, your journey was kind of one of what is a story? How do you tell a story? Yep. And the reason I want to have you on is because I think we as investors, most of the people who listen to this podcast are investors, we're trained in the math and that side of our brain. Yeah. And the stories, if we step back and think about it, think about you know anything in your life, whether it's your religion or the sports team you root for, or your government or your political party, or anything, any anything you really belong to, there's a story behind that. And any beliefs people have, there's stories behind that. And we don't really think about those. And and stories are such powerful things if told well. And I think, all you know, my audience, I wanted 
have them better understand how to do that, how to recognize that, yeah. how to recognize if this story you're hearing from this company or this or this policy, whether what's behind that, is it all BS or is there is there something real there? So let's back up. And, you know, you know, when you're breaking down a story, where does a story come from? What is a story? What are the parts of a story? So, yeah, so that's that's a it's such a simple question with such a massively complex answer. Storytelling is a really weird thing in that it's incredibly simple, but it has an almost infinite variety of output. So right. the, the model itself, the structure of a story is a relatively simple thing. And it has to be because children have to be able to understand it and use it quite quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, as soon as kids are young, they're using narrative form to try and persuade their parents to give them the things they want. Yeah. So kids will manipulate you by quickly working out that if they ask for what they want, they may not get it. But if they can reframe what they want into something that's good for you and sell you the benefit, yep. you might give it to them. Um, simplest version is give me the candy. You're not having the candy. They scream the place down. You give them the candy to keep them quiet which is, you know, the sign of a weak parent potentially, but I've certainly done it on multiple occasions. And there is the ultimate version of a narrative, which is emotional, <laughs> achieving what you want through basically selling a result or a benefit to the user. Mm -hmm. So storytelling at its heart, the reason why we have it, the reason why it's so powerful, it literally is interwoven into what a human being is. It, it's been here since we've been here. We've always been using narrative. So the first thing a good story does is it, it helps us understand the world. So our brains are wired to turn random information into narrative to help right. us understand it. So right. I would slightly critique what you just said about investors and how you guys, and you use guys as a pejorative here in terms of men and women, but how investors will basically look at the world or look at an investment and they will look at the numbers and they'll make a decision. The numbers are there to reinforce the decision that's probably already been taken. Yeah, so enough. it's basically a case of they've bought into the story of the investment, yeah. the emotional story. And then as long as the numbers back up the emotional belief system, then they will use that as a defense. A lot of the time with investors, if the numbers don't back up what they emotionally want to believe in, they get angry at the numbers. So that's why, you know, good investment sometimes is literally being is being dispassionate, pulling right. yourself away from the narrative yeah. because the narrative will absolutely persuade you. So, th so the first thing is everyone you ever try to persuade as, as an investor or anyone in business the reality is what a story is, is your audience is pre-wired to want to buy into a story. It's how we make sense of the world. We take random information and we create sense and meaning from the world. It's why we have gods and religions and everything else. It helps us make sense and meaning of the world. The second thing, the reason my stories are still so powerful, the second thing we then did with it is they were a really good way for us to help explain the world to other people. So the first thing a good story does is First story you create is in your own head by looking at the world, processing visual information, audible information, and you make a narrative from that. You see some tracks um, 15,000 years ago, and from those tracks and from some other things, you create a narrative about some prey animal went past here a while ago, and if we were to do this, this would happen, and there's your story. Second thing is then you have to go back and convince your other people in the tribe to come with you and go after the tracks and go after the animals. So you learn to use storytelling as a persuasive tool. 
And that's where we really see storytelling perfected today in business. You know, I'm sure a lot of your audience may, may be U.S. based. I mean, America has perfected narrative as a commercial enterprise, as a commercial tool for persuasion. Uh, and you see that not only in your advertising and commercial spaces, but also your political parties. They're incredibly persuasive in what they do, and they wrap everything into really compelling narrative. So what is a story? A story at its heart is a codification of information to create meaning, i.e. bringing in information from the world, turning it into something you care about, and then making you want to do something about it, to believe something, react to something, and want to do something about it. All right. We've gone through you know, what, is, what, is, what is a story, the yep. three parts of it. It's a way to understand the world, to explain the world, and to persuade others. Now, how does a story work? You start. You started talking about the codification, but let's get into how does how does a story work? Break this down. Yeah, sto- stories are, and, and again, there's a there's an, a multitude of different story forms, but there's one that we are pretty much addicted to, especially in the Western world. And there's all kinds of names for it. There's the hero's journey, the hero's narrative, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But basically, there's there's a, a few moving component parts that we have to assemble together. And when we put those together in a certain order, the, the audience feels that that's a story. So the most important thing about narrative in the modern world is most human beings don't like stories about things. So mm. things, facts and figures, data and information, most people switch off. The stories we love most are stories about people. So if we, let's think about something, you know, the stories that move the fastest through any organization, which is gossip. Yeah. You know, gossip is emotional, it's high intent, it's secret, it's special, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's private information, but it's usually, if not always, about a person. Right. So we just love stories about people, and especially people we can relate to, so somebody we can identify with. Um, that person has to want something, and they have to have a, a really clear goal that we can understand, high stakes, high urgency. We love stories with excitement in, in them. If you tell me a boring story, I will go and, and pick up one of the millions of exciting stories that are being sent at me every moment of the day. Yeah. So stories have got to be exciting. So a clear goal, high stakes, high urgency. If the story is about James Bond and his goal is to defuse the bomb, the stakes are that the whole of London's going to get vaporized. Or if Thanos gets the glove and gets all the stones, he'll click his fingers and half the universe will, will disappear. The right. stakes have to be high. Right. And the urgency, if we ever see a, a really good uh, story, especially in film, let's say it's a bomb that has to be diffused, the digital readout is never going to say six months. It's going to say 10 seconds. It's going to be right. a small amount of time. So the stories we get really compelled and pulled into are about someone, somebody who wants something clear and identifiable, high stakes, high urgency that gets us excited. Then they have to face a problem of some kind. So it has to be a challenge. If they just get what they want, it's boring. It's not a great story. So the reason the movie is called Mission Impossible. If the movie was called Mission Moderately Difficult, nobody (laughs) would go. Um, Or Mission, you could probably do this yourself, then Tom Cruise wouldn't have a career. Um, And he wouldn't have made the absolute genius piece of of, uh, film that is Top Gun Maverick, which I just saw yesterday, we'll see today, and we'll see again tomorrow. Um, there's got to be high stakes, high urgency. There's got to be a challenge. 
then there has to be a solution to balance the challenge. This is where the company comes in. Most companies make the horrible mistake of thinking they're interesting or that their product is interesting or that their investment is interesting. Nobody is ever buying your product or your company. Nobody's interested in you. And this is the hardest part of my job of getting senior executives to break through this model, which is they genuinely think, if I just tell you more information about my company, you will care. I will somehow, by just, it's almost like through friction, I will set a spark and I will set set you alight. And it's like, you know, yeah, well, setting a fire in the woods, that works, but it doesn't work in today's world. So the stories we love tend to be about ourselves. Tell me about me. Tell me who I am. Show me my world. Tell me you understand what I want. Show me the thing I'm struggling with that I can't get what I want because there's this big problem. And then you magically arrive as this incredible resource I can tap in to fix my problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so companies come in quite late in most corporate stories. From there, you get a result of some kind, usually positive. And in the best stories, the someone we started with is transformed. There's a change in the person. So the stories we are absolutely in love with are where somebody transforms through the course of the journey. Right. So, um, you know, the most successful movies of all time, you know, <clears throat> the, the narratives that move around the world, um, regardless of being translated in languages. Luke Skywalker starts off as a farm boy and becomes the savior of the galaxy. You know, it's, it's these transformations that we absolutely love. And these are also something that most business people are terrified of telling. Yeah. You know, they, they actually enjoy keeping the customer where the customer is because that means they're a consumer for life. And really, the, the stories where we find compelling are stories where we transform. So, so that's a, 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 an absolute rush through a very complex thing. But basically, the stories we love tell me about someone, a person that I can recognize, show me they want something that I care about as well, and go, oh, I would love them to have that. Even better, I would love to have that myself. Make it difficult. Make your company be the solution to that problem. So I, as the audience, see this person on screen or in the in the text piece or whatever, see them have their problem solved and think, well, if this company can do it for them, they could maybe do it for me. Um, and that's the pull for 99% of the commercial marketing advertising world we see around us every day. Yeah. I'm curious, the, the, the folks you talk to every day, have they heard of, you know, Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey or have they have, do they have background in that uh, or do you, or, or is it something where you, you sit and you, you sit in front of me and say, look, think of any movie you've, you've ever seen. There's three acts. You, you don't know this, but you know this. Right. You know, they're set up, you meet the characters, there's a problem presented, there's obstacles in their way. They overcome those obstacles and grow in the end end of movie and that's yeah. every and that's every kind of hero's journey every story yep and they and it gets overly complicated with yes. and 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 I, and I love the example you gave of if we just tell them more about our great thing they'll, they'll love it because i think that's natural we're we are, we're all whatever business we're in we're all so ensconced in what we're doing yep we're thinking oh but i'm very important if i just talk to you for 20 minutes you'll you'll come around and that's not how we're wired that's not how we work it's not, and it's. I call that persuasion through volume, yeah. and it, you know it doesn't work. 
Um, yeah. You know, the, the best example, whenever I get usually CEOs who tend to be our founder CEOs who tend to be the hardest, the ones who hang on the hardest to their old worldview. And they will say, no, if I just if I just explain more about, you know, my journey and how this happened. And I'm, I, I always say to them, that's a really important part of your collection of stories to promote your business to the world. But it's not the story. Well, they'll say, but well, if I back in 1970, I, you know, we were founded, and no, that's a timeline. That's not a, a story. Is not a timeline. A story has got a certain shape and an energy to it. So those CEOs that are founder CEOs that dig in very hard, I basically say, you know, have you ever fallen in love? And they'll go, yeah. And I say, have you ever fallen in love with somebody who wasn't in love with you? And most of them will turn around and say, yeah, at some point in their lives that has happened. And I says, and did you try to convince them to fall in love with you? And they were like, yes. And I says, and how did that work out for you? And I'm like, well, it didn't. And I says, and how much did you try? And the honest ones, you know, will go quiet for a moment and then they'll pour their heart out and tell you this horrible six month experience of trying to convince Jenny from their class that yeah, yeah. really, you know, they were meant for each other. You cannot persuade somebody through volume of repeating information. Yeah. There has to be the link. There has to be the emotional connection. Yeah. And most companies, you're absolutely right. When it comes down to narrative, if I say to somebody, define a story, most people cannot define a story. If I show them something and say, is that a story or not? They can tell you 100% of the time, is that a story or isn't it? And for the ones that aren't stories, it takes a few seconds for them to turn around and go, no, I don't like this. This is not good. This is not a good story. They yeah. know within seconds because yeah. they understand intrinsically the form. Yeah. And so that's that's the interesting thing is that none of, uh, it's a little bit like music as well, is that very, very few people on the planet understand musical theory, but everybody knows the tunes they like. Yeah. So the reality is music is inside of us. Storytelling is inside of us. It's intrinsic to our wiring systems. We can't necessarily codify it until somebody else helps us, but we all know a good one when we hear it or we see it or we feel it. And the connecting tissue between those two worlds, storytelling and music is feeling. Yeah. You know a great story when you feel it and feeling is the key. And that's the challenge we have in today's business world we are very good at, at, at emoting and, and triggering emotional context when we do, especially commercials. Commercials are just masterful at generating an emotional resonance and emotional reaction to something. And then we look at business executives trying to convince their employees or their shareholders or society or anything else. And they all fall, I shouldn't say all, the majority fall back into facts and figures and PowerPoint slides and yeah. all the usual stuff. And they try to get Jenny to fall in love with them once again right. with volume. Yeah. And, and what I try to do is go in and say, let's find out what's really, really important to the audience, what the audience is massively passionate about. And let's see how we can wrap your story uh, or put your story inside that and wrap that experience around what you want the audience to think and do. And that's a good story. Yeah. All right. Now I want to kind of pivot to the, the podcast is called The Sustainability Story. So we should talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And one of the things that really I thought was would be great to talk about is the, pro, you know, you, you talked about how for a good story has an emotional hook. It's about a person. 
it's about something that's, you know, the bomb doesn't say five years to go off. It says 10 seconds to go off. Yep. But that's a lot of the problem we have with things like climate change, other sustainability issues, biodiversity loss, natural capital issues. Yep. Is the time frame, as, as I see it, it's so out of whack with our understanding of how stories work and yes. how, we're, how we're wired. And how can we unpack that? How can we overcome that? Uh, from where you know, from where you're sitting, the issue of sustainability. How do we overcome that that fundamental disconnect between how we see stories and the alarm of this thing that's slowly building over over years, and it's going to be really bad, but maybe not for a while. So our brains are telling us, "Ah, oh, don't worry about it." Yeah, and, and this is, I, I suppose, what I bang my head against the wall with most often when it comes to the sustainable stories of, of corporations as well. So the, the, the challenge we have, if we go back to just what I said earlier, just briefly, the stories we love are about someone, people, right. people that we empathize with, we recognize, they look and feel like us. There's, a, there's an immediate emotional intimacy because we go, that could be me. Right. So hence the reason in commercials, you tend to see people in the commercials that literally look and feel and sound like the audience themselves, because you're, you're creating that instant connection. We then said that that person has to want something clear. There has to be high stakes and there has to be a high sense of urgency. And here is the enormous challenge we have with sustainability. Most sustainability stories tend to be at a planetary level, not a human level. Right. And if they are talking about people, they talk about people in terms of populations. They talk yeah. about community. They talk about millions. They talk about, you know, so... The, the, the secret to a really good, compelling story, and that's why most movies are about a single individual, a single individual on a journey, that person that you can empathize with and recognize and feel that they are like you. Most great novels, you're either following a single person or you're in the head of that person, literally feeling their journey as they go. And then we come to, especially climate change, and all of a sudden, who's the person? Whose story are we following? What's the... It, it all tends to be about 7.4, 7.5, 8 billion people. And it's very hard for the average person to connect to 8 billion people. Right. So the, the first challenge there for most, most sustainable stories fail at the first hurdle, which is they tell stories about the planetary community, the global population, or mm. the entire population of a country. What we've got to do is tell stories that are much smaller and much more intimate, but Storytelling is one of those things. The broader you go, the shallower the story tends to be. The narrower the story, the deeper the emotion. So we really, if we're going to get people to change their behavior, we have to trigger high emotion in those people. And one of the easiest ways is get me to care about a person who's on this journey. So I'll give you an example. Charities 20 or 30 years ago would tell you about when I was growing up. So I grew up in Belfast in Northern Ireland and back then, you know, this is in the 1970s when I was in primary school and back then they would, would come into the schools and, and we would fundraise for Kampuchea. I believe it's now called Cambodia. I think it's, that's what Cambodia was called 40 odd years ago. Okay. So we would fundraise and, and all these different things. And, I look at that back then as to how they did it. They would never tell us about the situation in Africa. Each of us as, as a, a young school child was given the picture of an individual. 
And we were given the story of this young child in Africa who was the same age as us. Um, and just for the happenstance of where they were born, they were living a, a life where literally starving to death was a possibility. Right. And the amount of emotion that that triggers, that you see this person that you can intimately connect to, that triggers high emotion, which triggers lots of action. So that's one of the first things we've got to think about when it comes to really driving sustainability is who, who are we going to tell stories about? And the, the temptation is that we tell stories about the world today, people today, you know, I, I, we jokingly had this conversation, or we it was not jokingly, but we had this sort of conversation when we were together there a few weeks ago. And I said, you know, I would love to put a campaign together where we find the top 1,000 most powerful people in the world. Mm-hmm. And we basically identify those of them that have grandchildren. And we go and we interview their grandchildren and we tell the story of their grandchild, their, their various grandchildren in 50 years' time and tell those stories and have those children write a story or record a story to their grandparent to say, help me in the future, help me with my life. You know, you love me today. You're always so kind and caring when I see you today, but your actions today are going to cause me unbelievable suffering when you're gone. And I think you love me more than that. And I think that is an incredibly emotionally, some people would say that's manipulation, emotional manipulation, but I would say it's emotional triggering because it's going to get a reaction. So it's so easy to disconnect from the story when it's about 8 billion people you don't know, when it's about somebody who's your, who's intimately recognizable to you or even your flesh and blood, you get a reaction. So that would be the first thing. The second thing that we struggle with then, of course, is um, the second part, which is tell me a story about someone who wants something, clear goal, uh, high stakes, high urgency. When it comes to sustainability, the, the goal is very simple. We have got to keep the temperature under control or you know, it may already be too late, but let's let's suppose that we can we can get some level of control. We're going to have a really tough couple of hundred years, but potentially we can get it under some level of control. So the goal's pretty simple. It was one and a half degrees in Paris. Realistically, now we're probably already past that point. We're going to probably sail easily past two, maybe two and a half. But let's say we can keep it to two and a half or three degrees. So that's a very clear goal. The stakes could not be higher. You know, the planet won't care. The planet will just handle it. But we will not be able to, to sustain um, the global population and the global infrastructure we currently have in that world. So the stakes could not be higher. We are going to see enormous migrationary pressure. We're going to see enormous food and water shortage pressures. So the stakes, I mean, you literally, I mean, uh, Thanos clicking his finger and, and wiping out half the universe. This is not far behind in terms of the, uh, the levels of stakes. The problem we hit. Just a slower motion. And, and that's the problem we hit is, so uh, clear goal, high stakes, and then the third thing we want is high urgency. And herein lies two problems. Number one, everything's happening so slowly. Um, I saw something literally on LinkedIn today where somebody posted a picture of the Empire State Building in New York, New York Harbor, when it was first built and first opened, and a, a matching picture from 2017 
and saying, I don't see any any sea level rises. This whole thing is just a made up story. Right. And you can argue there. You know, you could get into an argument with that person and say, well, why is it a 2017 photograph and not a 2022 photograph? Because maybe you might see a little bit of a difference, but you're more likely to get into an argument where they will, no matter what you say about um, hyperbolic growth, and they need to understand that this is a compounding problem and that right. the heat is going to compound <laughs> on top of heat and we're going to end up in a huge problem. Once you're into, into an arguable, mechanical, functional debate, you've lost. If you're the persuader, you only persuade emotionally. That's the only way. So that's the two problems we have with that part. Number one, everything is very slow moving. Um, and number two, the time scales are not close enough to us yet. So if if this was an asteroid, you know, listen, Armageddon and Deep Impact, not the greatest movies in the world, but the reality is they're very truthful um, in terms of, although Don't Look Up, which was the Leonardo DiCaprio movie from uh, early this year or late last year, similar sort of premise and, and much more pessimistic that people wouldn't actually do anything. But the reality is we tend to react to immediate problems. You know, diffuse the bomb, James Bond, it's, you, know, you can sustain a movie around that. The minute you say to somebody, we have to get the temperature under control, if we don't, we're talking about unbelievable systemic disaster for the human race. And people go, oh, I, you know, that we've got their entire attention. They say, when's this going to happen? And we go, sometime in the next 500 years. And all of the energy just collapses out of the story. So... The, the reality is the stories we tell each other about, about sustainability and climate change, the minute that a powerful, wealthy country, especially the U.S., if the U.S. has a particularly damaging and destructive hurricane season this year, if Florida starts getting battered two or three times a year and very wealthy people start to notice that their golf clubs underwater six months of the year, that becomes immediate and that starts to get people's attention. But that's the that's the challenge we have. I, I unfortunately don't have an easy click my finger solution. What's the one single great story that's going to really get people to pay attention to climate change and sustainability? And more importantly, do something. That's our biggest problem. It's it's not people even understanding the problem. It's changing their behavior. And human beings are habitual creatures, and we're creatures of comfort. And what we're asking them to do is, can you get massively out of your comfort zone? Can you change your behavior? And can you sacrifice for people you don't know on a timeline that's long after you're gone? And none of that jives or jibes, none of that connects to our core programming as human beings in terms of what's kept us alive for the last quarter of a million years. So it's it's a really, really hard challenge. But um, my thing is we've got to make the stories we tell about climate change and sustainability more immediate, more urgent, but not in this hysterical way that we have at the moment where we're getting screamy. Um, and for all the power of Greta Thunberg in the awareness that she gained, I think she generated 10 times more aggressive responses than supportive responses. Um, and I think what we got to do is, is tell more intimate, smaller, more personal, more, more recognizable, more deeply emotional stories to the people that matter. You only need to change the minds and the behaviors of a tiny number of people 
but it's the right people, the people who are in inverted commas in charge. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a massive challenge. It's a massive task. I think storytelling is a powerful tool in in how to get there. But there are lots of challenges even in the storytelling world as to how do you overcome most people's programming to to accept the stories and do something with them. Yeah, no, I, I, that that's very well put. I mean, and that's the same. Uh, you know, some of the same uh, things I'm concerned about is the you know, shrinking that timeline as, as we as we talked about in our conversation to something that matters to people. Uh, and you can you're beginning to see some of that in wildfires in Australia. And you know that was in the Australian election was just held a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And climate change, from what I've read, climate change uh, was you know the one the number one or two issue with most people. Same thing in you know California. Same thing in a lot of other places. One thing I'm curious about is I remember seeing a story about, I think it showed um, the pictures of what Miami will look like in, in 50, 100 years and other coastal cities around the world. Uh, but in the U.S., they focused on Miami. And you know, one of the things I think will concentrate people's minds is when you can't get insured uh, or you can't buy a 30-year mortgage in a, in a coastal city because we typically use 30-year mortgages here in the U.S. because a bank isn't going to insure that. And, and an insurance company doesn't want to touch you. So yeah. a shout-out to a gentleman called Daniel Martin Eckhart, who works for Swiss Ray, one of the big reinsurers, possibly the biggest in the world. An incredible human being, an amazing writer, has written a number of books and television movies and all kinds of stuff. An incredible guy, was, uh, was part of the Swiss Guard for the Pope, um, he, he's had a lot of very interest, was an actor in New York. He's had a, just an amazing life. Um, and I chat to him, you know, every now and again, we stay in contact. Uh, and, and he certainly has sort of made me aware of, of Swiss Ray's position where they're increasingly sounding the alarm bell to the investment community to say, you know, you need to understand that there's a point at which we just cannot justify or the numbers just do not stack up based on our vision of where the world is going. You know, they do believe the story of what's happening and they are uh, adjusting their portfolio accordingly. So that's, that's one of the reassurances or positives I do see in the world, you know? So I think we do have to talk about, you know, some positives because we are a little bit bleak. And I think there's a risk always with this topic that you get a little bit bleak and then the energy drops. And once the energy drops, the positivity goes. Once the positivity goes, it, it, you know, it all gets very difficult. The, the things I look at is the, for, the great fortune I have in this sort of third career is I don't work for any single institution. So I get to see behind the curtains of lots of really big, powerful, successful businesses. And I also get to interact on a, quite an intimate level with lots of very successful, powerful people. And the change, I've been doing this you know, since 2013, so nearly 10 years. In 10 years, the change that I've seen behind the curtain of these corporations in terms of the strategic thinking, in terms of where the money is being allocated, and most importantly, the change in the mindset of the executives about the world they're going to leave behind has fundamentally changed. There's a massive shift in belief in those people. And that gives me an enormous hope that we have a, a new class or a new generation of leaders coming through who really do, f legacy is important to them. 
you know, the, one of the flip sides of the of the corporate world of the last 30 or 40 years, we massively overcompensate senior executives. Again, the US would be the perfect example of that with CEOs earning 500 or 1,000 times what the average employee earns. The, the benefit of that is we've created a complete category of financially independent, powerful people who potentially can shape where the world goes in the coming decades. Now, we're seeing people like you know, Elon going to Mars, but certainly going up into orbit. We're seeing Jeff Bezos going into orbit. We're seeing Branson doing the same thing. There's, there's a slight flippancy to a little bit of that. But what we don't see are the thousands of executives who are financially independent using their corporations to begin building a better world. So I'm incredibly optimistic about the corporate world and the decisions now being taken and the actions that are beginning. It's too late. It may not be enough, fast enough to avoid the some of or most of the damage, but the momentum is building. And the other positive thing that I, I think everyone will probably already feel is that we are now so interconnected globally, a really powerful story. If it's emotional and resonant and human, it can pop up and go viral all around the world instantly. And we've never had that before. You know, we've been, I, I watched Carl Sagan back in, 19, I think it was 1985. There's a great YouTube clip of Carl Sagan speaking to Congress and and basically repeating 40 years ago in his mo, in typical Carl Sagan, wonderfully slow paced and eloquent and elegant way basically telling us where we are today. And he he laid the whole thing out and here we are 40 years later. And my first reaction to that was slightly depressed, you know, slightly negative, which is here's this guy 40 years ago that rang the alarm bell and we never paid any attention. But the more I thought about it, it's that's not true. We did pay attention. Some people did pay attention. And that thing being on YouTube, it's there forever. So people are watching it and finding it today. So he spoke to Congress in 85, 40 years later, I know for a fact there are executives watching that and it's shifting their behavior. They're listening to his story and it's changing their mindset and it's changing their actions. Now, a lot of them are executives that I'm forcing to watch it, but hopefully that will, if they will then pass it on to their peers, that will continue. So, so those are the two really big positives um, that I see. I, I think we have... This is the fight of our lives. It really is. And, and the reality is most of us don't see it. We just don't understand it. It's too big. It's too inhuman. And the scale is too big, too slow, and too far away. But the reality is enough people, from my experience, are paying attention and are changing their mindsets, and they are beginning to act that if those people can infect and, and, and persuade the rest of the world, we've got a chance. And that's what I'm trying to do is get into those executives, help them become even more compelling communicators. And if, if we can turn all of them into ambassadors, people with a rallying call, make them super persuasive, we can build some momentum. So I'm... You know, I'm 51, I'm 52 this year. And, you know, this is all going to happen after I'm gone. And there's that old thing of, you know, you do it for your kids and their kids and et cetera. And I think that is true. And I think those are the stories we need to start telling is, don't tell me where we are today. Tell me where we're going to be 
in 50 years time, but make it emotional, make it personal and make me genuinely care. And also convince me that my actions today do have an impact. If you can connect those things together, I think we got a chance. Yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons I had you on, uh, because I, I think, you know, the listeners to this podcast, investors in particular, we need, I'm speaking to myself as an investor, we need better tools for, for the storytelling. And I hope this has been helpful to people. They can leave this with better ways to tell the stories about making things and making things personal, you know, shrinking that timeline, saying these things are already happening. And one of the things that you, you kind of mentioned that, that I'm positive about as well is to step back and think about the pace of storytelling uh, we have today or the speed, I guess, that a meme can go around the world instantly where that would take centuries before, millennia even before. And that's, uh, that's a really good point. You know, the reality is the climate problem we have is a compounding problem, but our interconnectivity as a human species is also compounding. So it's a race. It's a race between how, how much we can, how much the temperature compounds to give us this physical problem versus how much we can increase understanding, awareness, and care, caring um, around the world. And if we can trigger action. Um, so I, this is, you know, we talk about the Cold War and the Hot War, and we have the current situation in the world today with Ukraine and everything else. There's another war going on, which is it, 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 there's an arms race between the physical world and our maturing as a human species to understand that we have a, a legacy to protect. We have a responsibility to 8 billion other people like us that we've got to be a little bit less selfish and a little bit more selfless. And, and that's an arms race that I think we were losing 10 years ago. And I think my gut feel is today we're pulling neck and neck. And if we can get a head start, if we can get an, if we only, the famous old quote, you only need to win a horse race by a nose. You know, we, we don't have to disappear into the distance. We've just got to get ahead of the curve. And, and I'm cautiously optimistic. Yeah, I, I agree. The way I, the way I've been thinking of it is there's two tipping points we're talking point, talking about. There's the tipping points of the natural world, whether it's the issue of climate change or the issue of biodiversity as a whole. And when do we tip into things being unsalvageable? And then there's the tipping point of you know, the mass of humanity getting together, individuals, policymakers, uh, business leaders that you're talking to. And when the critical mass comes of that community, tipping things into action that is bending that climate curve or whatever curve we're talking about yep. in the right direction. And that's the race. You know, and as you're, you're right, that's a great way to put it. You only have to win that race by nose. And I hope, yep. uh, I hope we can. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I'm not going to get rid of you yet. Uh, you, can, you don't get rid of me yet. As you, you've said, you said, you've kindly said you've listened to a couple of the podcasts. You know what's yep. coming now. We're going to give our listeners a little bit of homework. So tell, tell our listeners and tell me, you know, what are you reading? What are you watching? Uh, what are you listening to? I'll, I'll tell the I'll tell our listeners that uh, we were talking before we started taping about, uh, and you mentioned it, uh, the Top Gun Maverick. Yep. I'm. I don't know if I'm going to let you speak at length about that. I haven't seen it yet. I'm. I'm a little. Okay. I'm a little skeptical because I'm wary of stories. What well, tend to be movies, but I'm wary of stories that that their main reason for being is nostalgia, tapping into nostalgia. Yes. 
I'm I'm very wary of that. But you, you've told me that I should give this a chance, so I will. It's, uh, so you, it's you, saturated you, in nostalgia, and it is um, it's cliched, it's predictable, but it's no it's no less powerful for that. It's a it's a it's a brilliantly made, brilliantly executed, and brilliantly written film. It's it's the best film I've seen in the movies for years, wow. because it it's um, I mean ultimately a story's job is to deliver an idea or a meaning. So you know the reason why we we have the Trojan horse story, and everyone still tells the story. It never happened. It never existed. You know the Trojan horse story is basically saying if you want to deliver something incredibly powerful. Most people don't want powerful things. They don't want to change. They don't want um, impact in their lives. So you're going to wrap it in something more interesting, more colorful, more attractive. So that's the reason why the Trojan horse story still survives. It's a story about storytelling. Yeah. And I think that's the, we do that with medicines with kids. You know, we, we wrap the medicine in a sweet sugary thing to get them to take the medicine. And a great movie, especially movies, they've got to have a really strong theme at their core and a, and a theme that makes the audience emotional. And I think that's what this, this movie does really, really well. You know, it's, it's a, it's a middle-aged man's just dream movie. <laughs> it's about reconciling with the people in your life. It's about staying a maverick all your life, never compromising on your values, but also at the end of the day, understanding we all get older, we all grow up, we all eventually die. We all mature well, we don't all mature. We should all mature. And I think that's that's what that movie does beautifully. It basically says, here's a character who never compromises on the most important things in life, but also is brave enough and smart enough to understand that life has phases and that slowing down and settling down is not giving in or giving up. It's I, I, I just, I loved it. So I cannot recommend it highly enough. So, uh, so I'm, I'm watching that at the moment. I will have to go out and see that on, on your recommendation because I, tr- I trust I trust your recommendation. But besides that, what 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 are you reading? What would you recommend folks to read, listen to, watch, whatever you want to say? So, um, <clears throat> I have two relatively young kids, seven and eight. So I, I I watch what they watch, and and the rest of the time I'm usually sleeping. So watching, I haven't watched TV for years. I have no idea what's on. I don't recognize most of the shows. I, I queue them all up on Netflix with intentions to watch them and never do. So watching, not a lot. Listening to Podcast Freak, listening to everything and anything. I I, I tend to listen to podcasts for very few of them while I stay up for more than a year. I, I usually bounce around. I'll take recommendations from left, right, and center, but usually history, History, science, biography, current events. Uh, so I suppose being a storyteller, the thing I'm, I do most is read. So I, I certainly would give a couple of recommendations on reading. The one commonality I find between all of the most successful people I've ever met, and that goes back to my automotive career, my writing career, and now doing this, um, is all the, all the great leaders are readers. They all read and they read a lot. So they've always got a number of books on the go. And the one category that I always find is biography or autobiography. So I think you can learn so much from how to live a good life by reading how other people lived a good life or reading how other people really didn't live a good life and learning the lessons from that as well, learning the meaning from that. 
So biography is a huge one. I'm currently reading uh, Adrian Goldsworthy's biography on Caesar. I'm slightly fixated with the Roman world. So um, I, I tend to read an awful lot. Of, uh, there's a writer called Tom Holland who wrote Dominion and he wrote an amazing book about Caesar crossing the Rubicon. So Goldsworthy's is probably the, the gold standard Caesar biography. So I'm reading that. Um, I'm always reading at least three Vonnegut books at the same time. So I read Cat's Cradle twice a year, Sirens of Titan two or three times a year. Um, those would probably be the the sort of the, the safe go tos. Slaughterhouse Five, obviously. You, just just to interrupt. I'm, I'm curious about this. Do you read them far enough apart that you can bring a different self to them when yes. you read them and you get them up? Because I've my favorite book is, and I've read it three times, and I probably need to read it again, is uh, The Brothers Karamazov. Right. It's not a short read. No. I read it when I was 18. I think I read it again in my late 20s, in my late 30s, early 40s, and I'm probably due to read it again. I would hold off. I would hold off another five years. It's That's that's exactly one of those books that when you, when you read it as a young man, and obviously we can both just speak from the point of view of a young man, when you read that when you're a teenager, it tells you one thing and you and yep. you pull the meaning from it. Yeah. When you get a little bit more mature and a bit more seasoned, sometimes I tend to find people in their mid to late 20s get quite cynical. Um, you bring that cynicism to the book and you read it and you get a different interpretation. Once you're a family man, I certainly find a lot of books had a much deeper resonance to me. And now that I'm in my 50s, early 50s, I'm going back to certain books and finding a completely another level to those. So Vonnegut, Vonnegut to me is the most humanistic writer. He's on the surface, the most pessimistic writer, the most cynical writer, under the surface, the most humanistic and the most upbeat. I, I always enjoyed Vonnegut since I was young. But then when I lived in Manhattan, he lived about 10 blocks away from me. And I used to go to the post office whenever I had to sort of post stuff. This is, you know, shows you how long ago this was, 20 years ago. I would purposely go out of my way to go up to the post office that was just a block away from his home because I knew he used it quite a lot. So I used to bump into Kurt Vonnegut on a fairly regular basis and have little chats with him. Yeah. That's called stalking. Well, sorry? I said, that's called stalking, Terrence. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it, it probably is, but he he never seemed to have a problem with it. And he was normally lighting a cigarette outside the post office. I think he wasn't allowed to smoke at home. So he would have a crafty cigarette before he walked back to his uh, yeah. his his townhouse. And, and you know, I didn't, I didn't speak to him the first five, six times I saw him. And then we casually got into a conversation and then he would recognize me and, um, and say hello and we'd have a little quick, Never more than a minute or two, but um, an amazing writer, an amazing humanist, um, very playful. And I, I find when I return to those books, as I get older, I'm, I'm pulling a much deeper meaning and, and solace from them as well and connection from them as well. So, so that science fiction, you know, I, I think science fiction can be very uplifting um, I'm just in the middle of reading June again after having seen the movie and really enjoyed uh, uh, enjoyed the movie. Uh, so I'm reading that. I have not read Dune. I've been intimidated by it. Friends who yeah. have read it. It's very dense, isn't it? It is. It is. I, I, if you watch the movie, uh, Denny Villeneuve's movie just came out there last year. I think if you watch that first, 
it's like the you know the shrunken version of it. It's the Cliff Notes version. Right. So it, it actually gives you a, it, it allows you to get back into the book and it gives you, it helps you get through the book. Yeah. But the book is, is so infinitely rich. It's just it's yeah. a wonderful thing. Right. And then the final thing would be periodicals. You know, I I can't ima- I can't I can't even think how many magazines I read on a monthly basis. But I'm very disconnected nowadays at my age from which I shouldn't be from the TikTok world and all that kind of stuff. It's just not my scene. And I, my kids are still young enough where they're not really in the scene. Um, so a few more years and they'll be sort of, you know, in the the, the mainstream of sort of uh, culture. So they'll influence me then. Um, but I couldn't recognize, you know, most, any celebrity under 35 years old, I wouldn't have a clue who they are. Couldn't tell you a single song in the top 50 or top 100. So I'm, I'm I'm starting to feel my middle agedness in that world, but um, in terms of art and science and com, you know current affairs and politics and history and I, I just read as much as I can read all the time and it's useful for my job because I can pull metaphors and analogies from all over the place because uh, a lot of the times when you're telling a corporate story, people don't want to hear the corporate story, but if you tell them a really amazing history historical story that gets them excited and then you just transition into and that's exactly the situation we find ourselves in today and the audience is like oh then i know exactly how to behave because i understand that story and what it means and it's emotionally resonant it's got me excited i know how that story played out so you're telling me if i was to do these actions it would play out like that for us as well you've done 99% of your job as a leader by borrowing somebody else's story so so I keep abreast of all of that stuff. So I think the secret for me to be a good storyteller, consume as much great stories as you can. Read the classics, read the books that everyone tells you you should read. Find the time, make the time. If there's a great TV show that people say this is a classic, The Wire or Breaking Bad or go and watch it. Go and see great movies. Just go and see great stories wherever you can find them and absorb them and learn from them and use them. Uh, that's a great way to end. I can't say anything better than that. Cool. Terrence, thanks for your time. You're very welcome. I'd love to see you a few weeks ago, and I hope it's not as long until we see each other again. I say, hope to see you again soon. All Take the best care. to you and the family. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.